Welcome back to the UX and Growth Vault. So in April of 2017, we recorded two episodes that we never got to release. We've already published the first one about starting and growing a podcast. In this second episode, I sit down with my friend Jason Ogle to talk about his experience of hosting a high production show called User Defenders. Jason is such a kind person and a true force of mentorship and teaching in the design community. He's really always giving back, and this episode is no exception. So have a listen and enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the UX and Growth Podcast. I'm Austin. I'm a UX designer at HubSpot. And I am Jason Ogle, and I'm a podcaster for User Defenders. And today, we're going to be taking a deep dive on podcasting. Last episode, you all heard about some of the more high-level ways that you can get started and begin to create your own show. And now, I wanted to bring on a real expert, somebody who has taken a podcast from nothing and turned it into a real sensation in the design community. And that's why I brought Jason Ogle on to talk to us today about how you really get into the nitty gritty of launching and growing a podcast. He's a pretty interesting guy. He's been designing digital experiences and fighting for the user, as he says, since 1996, an OG of UX. He's a senior UX designer at NCM in Denver, Colorado. Before that, he was actually lead creative developer at MySpace back in the day. Yeah. Uh, We all remember those days. (laughs) And now he is host of the User Defenders podcast, which is focused around inspiring interviews with successful UX designers like Aaron Gustafson, Rachel Andrew, Koi Vin, Chris Coyer. He actually had a two-part episode with Jeffrey Zeldman, which was one of the best I've ever heard. So if you like this podcast and the general format that we take on it, and you like our approach to bringing big, influential, yet humble people on the show, you're going to love User Defenders because Jason is the king of that. So it's a show worth checking out. But what we're going to do is dive into some really deep stuff on how you run a podcast. So Jason, thank you so much for coming on the show with me today. Austin, it is an absolute pleasure to be here, and I am humbled by your introduction. Thank you so much for that. I I appreciate you very much, and I'm telling you this from the heart. I I thank you for your contributions, not just because we're, we're recording right now, but I really mean this, man. I, I appreciate your contributions to our field. I've been re- reading your articles for a long time now and getting a lot out of them in the show. I love the show, so thanks so much for having me. Ah, you're too kind. <laughs> it's, it's easy to do for you, but... <laughs> All right. So now that we've got the sappy stuff out of the way, you can tell that Jason and I are pretty good friends. Is it getting dusty Um, in the room, listeners? (laughs) Jason, tell us like, tell us about how, what made you get started in podcasting? Why, why do you choose this medium to work in? So I love to write, but it's so much easier to talk. And I think that's one of the reasons that I was so drawn to podcasting is it's easy to talk. And and if you have a message, if you have something you want to share, I just feel like audio is so powerful. 
And I feel like as designers, the better we are as people, the better our designs can be for other people. I started listening to shows and 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 really feeling inspired and, and moved and I learned so much. And I was like, you know, I've been I've been at this for almost 20 years now and I feel like I haven't really given back enough to this community. Like I need to do something to give back. And and so I just decided to to go for it. And you know, despite my fears, I, I'm I am a, a an introvert, I think by nature. I am just kind of more inclined to be introverted. But all the magic happens outside the comfort zone. So I I just yeah. I took the plunge and and I'll tell you, I've never been more afraid than when I hit record the very first interview that I did. But I can also tell you that after that interview was done, hitting stop. That was better than any drug I've ever tried. So that story that you're telling me there, that is something I have heard. That's a very common thread with designers, Mm. especially junior designers that are just starting to kind of like come out of that junior phase and they're really finding where their niche is in the community. And they're like, oh, wait, I actually know things now and Mm. maybe I can start to give back. But it's really difficult to take that leap and say, okay, I'm ready to put myself out there. How did you bring yourself to that point? I think it was me just going, what have I got to lose? How can I, if I can serve even one person with this, if I can help one person even stay inspired in their work, then that is enough for me. Our industry, and Austin, you can attest to this. You're somebody I look to. You're constantly like, if not ahead of the the edge or like all, all on the bleeding edge always of kind of where things are going. And honestly, a lot of it for me was just knowing, man, what do I learn now? There's so many different things. You can go on Medium and, you know, and see your your whole article feed and there'll probably be like 15 things you that you're supposed to learn, right? Like right away as a UX designer. And and mm-hmm. for me it's like, man, I'm overwhelmed. I actually I kind of wanted to not do this anymore for a little while after kind of oh, things started yeah. shifting like screens and and screens and screens and resolutions and what do you design for? And how many breakpoints do you need? And and I just kind of I guess a lot of it has to do with empathy, Austin. You know, I just kind of started putting myself in shoe in the shoes of of a designer that's just diving in right now. I mean, it was easy when it was much easier and more simple when I started doing this in 96 and the biggest challenges we had we're hacking table layouts and making them work on IE6, right? Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. <laughs> that was the biggest challenge. I mean, it was a challenge too, but it was it was also like a wild west. It was like a frontier where everything was new and and there was some of the most creative stuff still, I think, was that I've seen was back then because there were no rules. We were defining it as we went. So for me, I realized like, I just feel bad. Like for somebody just diving into this and going, where the heck do I start? Yeah, I think that you touched on something that really resonated with me and part of my motivation for starting this show, which was not just to give back, but also identifying what am I insecure about or what do I want to learn about or where do I think I need to grow and how can I do that with a community Mm. and developing that community. And in a very unexpected way, hosting a podcast has actually taught me more than I've ever put into this mm. podcast. Does that make sense? Like a lot <laughs> a lot of people the, the way that they view these shows is they're like, "Oh man, like 
that's going to be a net negative for you because you're going to be sitting there and writing agendas and coming up with all of the best information that you can mm. so that you can pack it into 45 minutes and share it in a show. And then what are you going to have at the end of it? And what I found is that everything that I've put out there, it's come back to me in tenfold because I'm meeting incredible people. I'm having people sharing ideas with me. I'm getting to talk to people like yourself. And it's also forcing me to think about these things and to teach myself to be an expert on these things, which I would have no motivation to do otherwise. Teaching people is a really excellent way to perfect your own craft. Absolutely agree, Austin. I think that's one of the things I really love about this too, is that I get to learn so much. Uh, I mean, I can't tell you the amount of growth that I've had. Yeah. And another thing that you touched on was your audience acquisition and retention strategy, right? Like mm -hmm. that's, you kind of find that when you're running and growing a podcast, it's not just about creating the podcast. What have you found has worked for you in identifying and growing your audience? Yeah. So one thing I've learned is that you can't build on rented land, right? And what that means is it's so much better to own what you're doing and, and invest in something you have like a website or your own email list, then to go ahead and build a huge audience on someone else's platform. That's actually one of the dilemmas that we have, especially now with all of these distributed platforms is mm -hmm. what do you invest in owning your own website, your own email list, and actually your own podcast in a certain way, because it's essentially just an RSS feed that is then pushed out to distributor platforms is a powerful thing. Yeah. Yes, absolutely true. Um, that's the thing about email lists. You remember how I, t how I put a tweet out there and I said, I just removed like 150 email subscribers from my list. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I did that. And I, that was a good learning for me. And I'll tell you why. And, and I, you, you kind of shed light on this for me too, uh, when, with your response. And, you know, you, you said, you asked me this question, you said, did you warn them first? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, uh, no, I didn't. I just removed them. And that was, that was bad. So I think I read something from Tobias Van Schneider about how he kind of is totally fine with people unsubscribing. He actually likes it, so to speak. Mm. And, and, and it's kind of, I mean, it's tongue in cheek, but basically he's saying like, if you don't want to be on my email list, I don't want you on my email list. I only want to serve the people who actually care about what I'm doing. And that's my sentiment as well. So I use MailChimp and I realize I'm using up my email sends to people who aren't even opening up my emails. Yeah. Right? Yeah. A few episodes back, we had Anam Hussein on the show, and she talked about that specific tactic, actually, mm. which is part of what I was uh, referring to with how we did the same thing at HubSpot. We identified a bunch of users that were on our various email workflows that weren't engaged. And then we sent them a warning email that said, hey, we noticed that, you know, you're you haven't been opening the emails from us. We definitely don't want to be crowding your inbox or sending noise to you. So we're going to remove you from our lists unless first, you know, it turns out that you would like to stay. And the open rate and the engagement rate on that was very, very, very high, exponentially higher than previous <laughs> campaigns that we had been sending because Fascinating. 
Yeah, it, it turned out that people actually did want to be getting our emails and, and opening them. And we were actually measuring a lot of it based off of clicks, not just open rates. But they still wanted to, to receive them and save them to be read at, at a later, later date or something like that. Then there was also a significant amount of users that were happily removed. And that's okay. It's, it's better for us to not tarnish our brand and our yeah. reputation yep. by continuing to send noise to them. Yep. But you've monetized your show in some pretty creative ways where it's clear that you've been very selective mm -hmm. about the type of companies and individuals that you will allow to come onto your show or in, into your email list or to sponsor the work that you're doing. How did you make the decision to monetize? How do you, how do you go about doing that? So if you're serious about creating a show and passionate about it, you're going to come to a place and it could be sooner than you think to where if you don't have any revenue coming in and, and actually in the beginning, you won't have any, and, and it's going to be all out of pocket. So count the costs. And I'll tell you, it is fairly cheap. It's fairly reasonable to start a, yeah. a podcast. It doesn't cost a ton of money, but it does cost some. And every time, every month when I get those bills and it hurts a little bit, especially when you got, you know, a soccer team like me family. So here's the thing. If you want to scale your show, you need revenue. Right. And, and any business that doesn't, ha that spends more than it makes is not a business. That's the bottom mm -hmm. line. Right. So yeah, you're going to have to find ways to, to get sponsors on board with what you're doing and or affiliate. There's a lot of affiliate opportunities as well, but you're going to have to find a way to monetize this thing if you want to scale it. Right. If you're, if you're just fine sitting in the basement and recording something that you want to talk about on your computer mic, that's totally cool. I mean, that, that's totally fine. And if you just have the passion to just do that and you're, and you have people listening to your, what you're doing, that's awesome. I think that's great. And then if you're, you're able to keep costs down or it doesn't hurt, hurt your bottom line, that's totally fine. You can do that forever. But if you want to grow the thing and you want to help more people, right? That's because that's the point of all this is serving an audience and helping people. If you want to do that, it's going to cost, it's going to cost you. So I, I recommend finding sponsors that uh, align with your message and your audience, especially Right. So I think that, and, and I've kind of set a standard for myself and to where I will not allow sponsors on the show that either a, I don't use myself B mm -hmm. that I don't see a, a huge benefit for my listeners. So yeah, I think it's just keep it focused and, and always add value. I can talk about sponsorship versus affiliates. Affiliate marketing is, is kind of a crapshoot. So you could spend a ton of, of time on your show and I've done it. And you could spend a lot of time talking about an affiliate and, and only get like maybe one, one conversion over like a year. I'm serious. And, and I'm not trying to discourage that because some people can do really well. Pat Flynn does quite well with affiliate marketing, but he's Pat Flynn and it took him a while to, to get there. Yeah. So you found direct sponsorships to be more effective to you. Yes. Have you way more? Yeah. Have you personally, when you're securing those sponsorships, do you usually personally reach out to the companies and ask them if they would like to sponsor your show? Do you find that they come to you? Is there some type of network that you use? How do you go about that? Hmm. Great question. So over the course, of, it's going on two years this November, so a year and a half, I guess, that I've been doing this, I've had one company approach me to ask for uh, hmm. to sponsor the show. And a big part of that, this is, this is a good takeaway for your listeners as well. A big part of that is that I didn't have an ask on my website. 
So I didn't provide the right. means. I didn't, I didn't say, Hey, we're accepting sponsorships. So, and, and there was, there was, that was strategic in a way too, because the whole point, I feel like, you know, remember Zuckerberg, the guy who played Zuckerberg in the Facebook movie, you remember how like the other guy was like, Hey, let's just, let's, let's sell this thing. Let's get ads. Let's do this. And, and then Zuckerberg's like, let's make this cool. And then that'll all take care of itself. Like, let's make a cool thing that people need and people yeah. want. And then let's build an audience first. Right. You can't sell something to nobody, to somebody that's not there. So that was my intention. That was strategic. So I just recently, within the past probably four months, three, four months ago, I actually put a link on the website that says advertising. And it's very bare bones. I, I need to spend time populating that more with more information. But basically, it's like, hey, if you want to get your message in front of the most passionate UX designers around, uh, then please let me know. And that's all I've done. So I had one person approach me, but mostly it's been through networking. Knowing somebody who either works for a company that has an alignment of of the message and saying, "Hey, let's let's do this." That's that happened to me. A good friend of mine was like, "Hey, let's can we sponsor your show?" And I was like, "Absolutely, that would help a huge deal." Anyway, I also have been reaching out a lot more lately to companies that that I feel would be a really great sponsor. And I'm super proud that Adobe has come on board to sponsor yeah, our, congratulations. our show. Thank you. That's just, I'm so honored. So it's things like that. It's, just, it's building, it's networking, it's making connections. And, and also like when you're reaching out to sponsorships, make it mutually uh, beneficial, right? Mm -hmm. Like, like, don't just be, don't be selfish about it and just say, I, I need money for the show. Like, can you, anybody sponsor it? Like, and what I was able to do, you know, we're getting some pretty good download numbers now for every episode. So I was able to kind of use that data, take screen grabs. When you start seeing some, some really neat inflection points, take screen grabs of your Libsyn uh, CDN downloads and use that to build your, your CPMs for your costs for, for ads, for pre-rolls, mid-rolls, et cetera. Yeah. So that's one of the pains that we especially find with podcasting is how basic the analytics are. They might as well be non-existent because it's just RSS download numbers and location. Yeah, really. It's, it's paying attention to downloads, grabbing that screen that shows, wow, look at this. And then using that as, as, as the data point to determine what your ads should sell for. And I used a uh, yeah. reference, uh, John Lee Dumas. Mm -hmm. He has uh, something on his website that you can reference about what he what he's discovered as a longtime podcaster that actually makes sense to charge uh, for sponsorship. So I use that as a guide and uh, it worked out. Awesome. I'll have to get that link from you and we can mm -hmm. pop it into the description. Totally. In order to get those numbers where you're seeing that people are listening and their high download counts, people have to find out about the show. And yeah. that's kind of a difficult thing because the iTunes store just doesn't make that very easy to do. The discoverability is very low, especially if you don't have reviews. And then you've got distributed platforms like Stitcher and, and stuff like that, which are kind of off in their own world. You've done a pretty good job of building up a website and your email list and a Twitter following. How did you get people to find out about your show, though? Was that through those channels or, you know, it kind of feels like a chicken and egg scenario in, in a, a certain way, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it does. And it's it's probably going to be unique for every show, I, I would venture. Mm -hmm. But for me, I, I think it's just been really focusing on quality. 
Okay. I, I would say, honestly, like that is one of the biggest and maybe least talked about parts of having a successful show is, is going for quality. People will find you. I love what Seth, I, I follow Seth Godin. He's been a huge inspiration. He says, make good stuff. Your audience will find you. It's amazing how your listeners promote the show for you. And if you start off with a good, you know, 10, 15 listeners that are passionate, your show is going to multiply itself organically as long as you build that trust to your point earlier and stay true to what you've always promised to deliver. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, and again, it's great when an influencer is interested in your show and, and puts it out there. That's been a huge help for me. Like Zeldman, like, I mean, f- mm-hmm. for crying out loud, like I've looked that I've looked up to that guy for years. I mean, he's been uh, my superhero for years and I've mentioned on the interview and, and to get him on the show was just a huge honor for me. And, and for when, when he pr- put it out there on Twitter, that helped the show a lot. Right. But again, please don't, don't like, Use that as a a measuring stick to go, I'm just going to go and find the most premier, best, most followed designers out there in the world and only schedule interviews with those people. I will tell you sincerely, like some of the, I think, deepest interviews, like save Zeldman. Zeldman's was really great. But some of the the deepest, most impactful interviews I've had have been with some folks that that have like maybe two or 300 followers on Twitter. Yeah. So don't discount that. Like you can get some awesome content and, and let, and people will find you. That's, that's the important thing. Your audience will yep. find you. Jason, I could talk to you all day, man. <laughs> we are coming up against the end of our time here. So if anybody wants to get in touch with you, learn more about the awesome work that you're doing, what's the best way for them to seek you out? Yeah. Thanks, Austin. And and again, I could talk to you also, and I appreciate your friendship, man. Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> Seriously. Um, you are, you are, uh, a force to be reckoned with. Uh, and I appreciate you. Thanks for having me. You can reach me on Twitter at Jason Ogle. You can find me. My, I, I, I don't want to lead you to my website because it's just me trying to learn Flexbox and CSS grid. So you can go visit user defenders at uh, userdefenders.com or on Twitter at, at user defenders also. So happy to answer any questions you might have happy to, to serve you in any way I can. If you're starting a show, uh, don't hesitate to hit me up. Awesome. And if you Subscribe to the UX and Growth Podcast on iTunes. Just pop in that search box, User Defenders, and you'll see Jason's show come up as well. Until next time, thank you for listening and have a great day. Take care.